You know, for those of you who've never had the chance to um, enjoy theater productions at Oxford High School, may I just give you a very friendly and enthusiastic commercial for that particular event? We actually, led by uh, our own John Davenport, have one of the, I would consider one of the premier theater programs in the country right here in our own backyard. Uh, And it's a program that I'm very proud to say uh, has featured a lot of students from Christ Presbyterian Church over the years. And, you know, I've gotten to where I'm saying, frankly, other than like game days and weekends, uh, it's one of my favorite, most entertaining evenings that I can spend seeing one of these productions. But if you go, you need to be warned. Uh, Because Mr. Davenport uh, consistently has a, shall we say, a very unique view of the world that expresses itself in his art form. Uh, in sometimes, shall we say, unsettling ways. And the way he often does it is by working with the setting. He changes up the setting on a very familiar place to sort of throw a different pitch at you. Because the setting, arguably, really is the central feature that guides the viewer into the meaning of the play. It provides the atmosphere of the action, the, the mood of the story, sort of sets your bearings as you move throughout the presentation. So let's say, for instance, that you decided to attend last fall's production, OHS theater production, of The Wizard of Oz. You ignored the fact that it was opening on Halloween weekend, and you went to see a charming rendition of your favorite childhood tale. Mr. Davenport stood up before the theater production started and said to the crowd, but I'm about to crush your dreams. Why? Because the play was set inside an insane asylum. Tin Man, Scarecrow, the Cowardly Lion, they were all inmates in the asylum. At least that's what you're led to think until you discover by the end of the play that actually Dorothy is schizophrenic. And these, her friends, were just projections of her very disturbed mind. Now look, I realize that regardless of whether that sounds compelling or interesting to you or not, you left that play talking about that radical new setting. You you saw how this new meanings were opened up to you and a conversation about mental health ensued. What's the point? The setting of any drama is the guiding mechanism for you into the meaning of the story. And so we're looking this summer at the question of how the Bible is, at its most fundamental level, a story. And, and, And in order to understand that story, getting the context... Figuring out the setting of the story is one of the best ways to ensure that you stay away from some very bad interpretive habits, where either it might cause you to skip over certain parts that you just don't like or can't understand, or worse, skew certain truths into ways which uh, which the Bible does not allow. So how do we unlock the mystery of the Bible's setting? I think it's best as we continue to look at the opening chapters of Genesis that we understand the mental world that these people were operating in. So I just want to throw three ideas at you this morning. The first one is, I want to look at the concept of heaven and earth. I want to look at the idea of the divine council. Explain what that is in just a second. (laughs) Thirdly, I want to ask why in the world would anyone ever care about that? How about that? So first of all, let's look at this idea of heaven and earth. Imagine with me, if you will, a warm summer evening. It's clear as crystal. You look up at the night sky and you see stars. They're beautiful. But what is it that that beauty means? In other words, how do you understand what you're seeing? How do you comprehend it? Well, my guess is if you're like most people, you look up and you would say, well, Les, those are giant gas balls. 
uh, up in the sky. And then, you know, they're millions of miles away in this place that we would call outer space. And we know that the light has been traveling thousands of years to uh, arrive at us. And of course, the, the fact that they're moving across our horizon is really just the earth spinning on its axis. That would be your explanation. And you would be absolutely right. But to the degree that you see the world around you through purely scientific lenses, offering a scientific explanation for what you see around you, you are what we would call a modern person. Influenced, as it were, by a way of seeing the world that was brought about by the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment was a time when science began to take an ascendancy in human thinking. There's actually a fancy word people talk about the way in which people view the world. It's the word cosmology. Uh, ology, study of, cosmo, cosmos, a study of the cosmos. How do you understand the world around you and look at its meaning? What I want you to understand this morning is that when a Jewish person would look up at the sky, he would have a completely different mental experience. And what we have here in Genesis 1 reflects that way of what we might call, if we were at will, a Jewish cosmology way of looking at the world. Remember, Genesis was written by Moses to a group of Jewish people, and they had a unique way of looking at the world around them, both the seen and the unseen. But what would a Jewish person have been thinking when he looked up at the sky? Well, verses 6 and 8 guide us into it, because the Spirit of God has been hovering, like we said last week, over this primordial sea, but he's spoken light into existence. But then on the second day, he makes a separation. The separation between the seas, though, he refers to as heaven. And of course, in the next verses, he creates land and calls it earth. There you go. There you have it. At the most basic level, a Jewish reader looked at the world around them, and they said there is a heaven and there is an earth. Heaven is God's space, his realm, the dimension where he lives. The earth is our space the realm of our existence, of observable life. Now look, our space, I'm assuming, is pretty familiar to you, but the Bible actually gives us lots of information about God's space. Because it was natural that when a Jewish person looked up at the sky, he began to picture that and imagine that as if he was looking at God's space. turns out that the sky was a fairly excellent image for a God's space because it was expansive. Massive, very endless in that sense. And so to look up was to look up at God's heaven. Now, mind you, that doesn't mean that they thought that God was up there. It only meant that it was the way in which they imaginatively conceived of something that stood for God. But it also doesn't mean that they thought that that realm where God lived was completely inaccessible. Actually, quite the contrary. <laughs> Throughout the Bible, especially in the, in, in the way the Bible treats mountains, you hear people referring to getting to God as going up. When you went up to a mountain, you were entering God's space. And there's all kinds of places in the Bible where this shows up. Let me just give you a handful of them. In Ezekiel 28, we actually find out that the Garden of Eden was actually a mountain garden in Jewish imagination. To get there, you went up. Later on in the book of Genesis, when rebellious man builds the Tower of Babel, which would later on become Babylon, they do so so they can what? Reach up to the heavens. Why? Because they wanted to enter God's space. <laughs> on their terms, by the way, which was a big no-no. 
When God appears to Moses and the Israelites after they leave Egypt, where does he appear to them on? On Mount Sinai, uh, sort of in in great uh, terror and, and fear. King David, when he founds Jerusalem, does so on a mountain rise in Palestine. I would argue that almost every single major covenant that gets forged in the Old Testament is done so on a mountain. Why? Because you are symbolically in his space. You know, the prophets actually are loaded with these same kind of references. I'll just mention one in, in, the, in, the, in the minor prophet book of Micah, chapter 1, verse 3. You see God coming to judge the injustice that Israel's been committing for hundreds of years. But listen to how he talks about it. He says, for behold, the Lord is coming out of his place, heaven, and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. See the point. Up was where God was. Suffice to say, the concepts of heaven and earth were central to the way in which these folks viewed the world. But what you have to realize, though, is that God's dimension in man's space in the Bible often overlap. They are not completely separate. In the Garden of Eden, you have really the space where heaven and earth were vividly united. They crossed over one another. In that place, God was not invisible to man. They walked together in the cool of the day, we find out. But later on, God would actually instruct his people to build a worship tent, or what came to be known as a tabernacle. Uh, It was a tent so it could be portable for a nomadic people. And we're going to look at length (laughs) at that tent coming this fall. We look at the book of Exodus. But when you look at that study of it, you're going to find that the worship tent was covered in decorations that made it look like a garden. (laughs) Why? Because it was supposed to make people think of the Garden Eden because the tabernacle was the place where heaven and earth intersected. That was the new spot, the new way back into Eden, as it were. So you can imagine how strange it was a couple of thousand years later when a Jewish rabbi by the name of Jesus starts coming around and talking about the temple is being destroyed, but then in three days is going to be raised again. And of course you realize that Jesus was talking about himself. Jesus is the new temple. He's the fulfillment of that which the Old Testament temple was just a copy or a type as it were. What's he saying? Jesus is saying, now that I have come, I am the only intersection between heaven and earth. It's going to be here. (laughs) And as if that wasn't enough, when Jesus departs from this earth in Acts chapter 1, he goes up, of course. A few days later, there was this massive spiritual disruption, what we call Pentecost, where the fiery presence of God appears over all of the people of God as they gather to worship Jesus. And so the earliest believers saw that in this was now the new intersection between heaven and earth, his gathered church. You ready? For where you are this morning. That's where we were leading with all that. <laughs> you are here in the Bible's cosmology in the place where heaven and earth intersect. You thought you were in a skating rink. Now, what are we going to say from this, from this first point before we move on? But let me start asking this question. It's worth saying, how do I view the world? How do I make sense of what I see around me? What do I see? Not what do I observe, but what do I see when I look up at the night sky at the stars? Because one of the ways of sort of becoming a Bible person is seeing the world the way the Bible views the world, through, the, through God's eyes. 
And so God wants us to think about our place in this world by beginning by realizing what the world looks like. And it simply goes like this. There's a realm where we can see, taste, touch, and and, and feel. But there's also an invisible realm. And it's all around us. It's signified for us by a sky. Not because that's where God lives, but because it's vast and endless and expansive. But but it's all around us. And those are our two realms in which we live. It reminds me of that old illustration. Preachers use this all the time. Um, And it turns out it's based on on a mistake. Yuri Gagarin is the very first man to ever go into space. You remember this story? First Russian cosmonaut. And it's legend now that when he gets back, the thing that he says is, um, I went to heaven and there was no God there because they assumed that God was up. Turns out it actually was Premier Khrushchev who said that. And Gagarin, who was a very faithful member of the Russian Orthodox Church, never wanted that to be tagged with him. But such are sermon illustrations from the 1960s. But the point is this, not God is up there. Heaven is God's space among us. And if you want to get a sense of what it's like, take a look up. Because that's how a Jewish person saw heaven and earth. Okay, that's the first idea. Let's go to a second idea, though, that we get from this passage as well. And that is the divine counsel. What is that? Well, you know, if you're wanting to sound all fancy about it, what I think we're trying to build is a Christian cosmology. How are we to view the world? Because Genesis actually gives us more information about what these Jewish people saw when they looked up at the sky. Because since that space was God's space, there were other creatures there as well. Other creatures. In other words, the stars that they were looking at to Jewish people actually represented heavenly creatures. Spiritual residents of God's space that had their existence in God's spiritual presence. These resonants, of course, had very different kinds of bodies than humans have. They were shiny and spiritual in nature. They possessed properties that we don't have on earth. But the Bible talks about these creatures all the time. But what often throws sort of casual readers of the Bible off at this point is that Moses will often refer to these creatures as if they are, you ready? Gods. Now, they're not talking about them being big G gods, but little g gods. The problem is a little bit of a translation struggle with a Hebrew word called Elohim that is usually translated God. But there are some times when that word can be translated and mean the one true God. At other times, that word is translated to mean these other spiritual beings that sort of inhabit God's space. The glory, though, and status of these people are reflecting the one true God. They exist to live for his purposes. And actually, what's even more interesting is that the God is in constant communication with these spiritual beings in tons of places in the Old Testament. I would suggest to you that the very first time that you see God addressing this sort of heavenly staff team, if you will, is in the first chapter of Genesis in verse 26. What does it say? Let us make man in our image. I don't know about you, but I grew up thinking, well, who is God talking to? Who's the us? What do you mean we? Your first thought is, oh, he's talking about the other members of the Trinity. Other people, when I was in seminary, said, no, actually, it might be the royal we that kings sometimes refer to themselves as us. But I'm actually now convinced, along with the Old Testament theologian Meredith Klein, that God was talking to these heavenly creatures, or what the Bible will call in some places a divine counsel. 
a, a divine staff team that fashioned, uh, uh, that was in the process of God talking to them about fashioning uh, mankind. Now look, we're not saying, of course, that someone else participated in creation along with God or that God somehow needed these heavenly creatures to create the world. It reminds me a little bit when you're talking to your toddler. You ever said to your toddler, like, you know what? Let's make grandma a cake. And then you go and make the cake while they just kind of sit there. (laughs) I think that's, why do you talk that way? Because you want to include them. You want them to be a part of what you're doing. And so what we find is that God often speaks to his divine staff team, and he says we when he really means me, so that he can include them in the execution of his will. I realize that this may be for some of you the first time that you've heard this, but I think once I show you where it is, you'll realize that it's actually all over the place. As a matter of fact, this conversation slash consultation that God has with his heavenly staff team shows up in tons of places in the Bible. But I'm only going to mention two for us this morning. The first one happens in the book of Job. When was the last time you read the book of Job? In Job 1, the scene opens with God bragging to this heavenly host of creatures about his servant Job, that he's the most righteous guy that they know. When all of a sudden one of these, and by the way, in verse 6 of Job 1, it says, one of the sons of God comes up actually to take issue with what God has said. The translation is just the accuser. Translation is the Satan, where we get the word Satan. And of course, he comes up and says, the only reason why that guy, Job, follows you and serves you is because you gave him an easy life. Take it all away from him, and he will curse you to your face. And so God gives Satan permission to wreak havoc on Job's life in order to show him his faithfulness, all under the divine constraints that he puts over it. And so this is really a vivid description. You get all the attributes of this divine staff team. First of all, they are present with God in his heaven. Second of all, God includes them in his internal conversations about executing his will. And then third, these creatures do his bidding on his behalf oftentimes. Let me give you a second place in the Bible. This one's actually more vivid. Psalm 82 says in there, in the verse four, four verses, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, Elohim, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. And look, we don't have time to sort of walk through the history of interpretation of this psalm. But it should be clear from this translation that God is actually accusing some of these spiritual beings of oppression and of injustice. So what the psalmist is saying is, is that behind the sort of human injustices and oppression that we see, there is a spiritual realm that is influencing, that is in conversation with what's going on there. Now look, don't let your mind go to the last sci-fi horror show that you saw where people talk about spiritual possession and people being forced to do things against their will. It's not what the Bible's talking about here. The influence that these spiritual beings have is by human beings pledging allegiance to those other gods. It's idolatry. (laughs) In short, God not only condemns human beings for their worship and making idols of these spiritual beings, but also to the spiritual beings who willingly took on that role so that they could usurp God's authority. It's amazing to me. So what's the point? 
Well, go back to Genesis 1 where God makes another type of creature and by the end of the chapter declares that he's going to want to rule the natural world. These people he calls humans. He makes Adam and Eve. But here's the big dramatic twist is that God intends that the lowly human beings, they're the ones who have been designated by him, appointed even to rule creation. Psalm 8 says this, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, there's a Jewish person, he sees the stars. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Listen to this. You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Whoa. You've given him dominion over the work of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. All right, now brace yourselves. Fast forward to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where Paul has this throwaway comment that he makes to the church there because they're suing each other in municipal courts. He says, don't do that. (laughs) Uh, Why? Because you're plenty competent to settle these issues among yourselves. Why? Because one day, and this is a quote, 1 Corinthians 6, 3, don't believe me, look it up. Because one day you will judge angels. What? And I know that sounds crazy, (laughs) but my point is that God created humans to rule over these spiritual beings, and some of them don't like it. One of them, very especially, that we're going to talk about in about two weeks at this time. So stay tuned. Okay. Why in the world would this matter? You really would be justified at this moment to think to yourself, less I'm either freaking out or I'm exactly wondering what this could possibly have to do with me. Well, I simply want to offer you two thoughts that need to, of application that apply to us as we consider this about the setting of the Bible story. The first one is this. God cares about this world. God cares about this place. It's so easy to assume that the real action in life is the spiritual realm and not the physical realm. I don't know, maybe we'll all go to heaven and we'll just be disembodied spirits sort of floating through eternity together, something like that. What you've got to realize is, is that the movement of history, this is huge, the execution of God's plan is towards permanently joining heaven and earth, just like it was in Eden. Don't believe me? How about Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10? Making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. You ready? You ready for this? To unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Did you catch it? Everything in human history is eventually wanting to bring these two things together again. My favorite commentator is David Atkinson says this. He says, the heavens and the earth can and will come together. Heaven can reach down to earth and the things of earth will be caught up into the place of God. And it is in our humanity where they begin to meet. See, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, right, he's talking about like in the end of time when God sort of finishes all up and we go to heaven. Actually, we get tastes of that on this side. As the New Testament makes most clear, we can at one and the same time, be in chains, talking about the Apostle Paul when he was in chains, and in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. (laughs) Do you hear that? Why? Because those Christians thought about their way that way because they looked at the world the way the Bible looks at the world, not the way we look at the world. Because of what Jesus did, we have access to both realms. I would make an argument, this is where you go when you pray. You enter into that realm. 
I would also argue that this is where you go when you come into this room. We invited his presence among us. That this is the place where he rules over us and engages with us. So God cares about this world as the first point of application. But secondly, the Bible tells us that we live in a supernatural world. We live in a supernatural world, however you want to fathom that. And I realize that there's two bad freakouts that people have when you say that. On the one hand, you have people being like, oh, there you go. (laughs) There you go, Christians. You hate science. You're all about this weird angels and cherubim and demons and weird stuff like that. I knew you guys were anti-science. Actually, you're not paying attention if you think Christians are anti-science. There's some scientists who are likely either in this room right now or the service next who would take issue with that. But I would also guess, though, that those scientists would tell you and warn you against the danger of totalizing a scientific worldview as it was your only way to view the world. The other way to freak out about this is, and I'm going to use this phrase, is to overbelieve the supernatural. And what I mean by that is there's sort of a false version of the Christian life where angels are summoned by Christians to do their bidding. You know, people are binding demons from their car batteries, you know, because their car won't start, things like that. But those are overly dramatic sort of practices that have no command in the Bible to do. We're we're never commanded to summon angels. We're never even told to seek interaction with them, nor to bind demons from, from from our children's bedrooms at night or whatever. But it could make you wonder why God would tell us this in the first place. And I'd like to offer a reason. Because we live in a world that there is so much more there than can be seen with our senses. That's it. And that may be our spiritual ailment. Is the reason why we struggle with our prayer lives because we think this world is all there is? I mean, is the reason why we're so stingy with our stuff is because we think this world is all there is? Is the reason why we fight aging tooth and nail is because we think this world is all there is? Again, from Atkinson, he says, we need to be open to seeing such signals of transcendence glimpses of heavenly glory in our world and in ourselves and in one another. Boy, and how. For all that is made, heaven and earth, comes from the hand of God. In our world, which so often overemphasizes material and earthly values, which so often understands human life only in terms of material factors, such as body chemistry or economic cost-effectiveness, we need to remember that we are creatures of a God who made the heavens as well as the earth. And hear this, this is awesome. And our world is open to him. This is not a closed universe, Atkinson says. It is open to him. There are possibilities out there that if we could only see through the Bible's eyes would be made aware to us. So I really hunted for an illustration. I think the best one comes from the Bible itself, from the book of 2 Kings, chapter 6. It's a wonderful story there about the Jewish prophet Elisha, who who for years has been telling the truth to Jewish kings, uh, and they didn't want to hear it. And so now he's going to pay for it with armed emissaries coming down from the king to kill him. Well, Elisha's servant begins to freak out. He says, alas, my master, what shall we do? Someone's come to kill him. And Elisha, though, cool as a cucumber, suddenly realizes what's happening. That servant, he can't see properly. So he prays this, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. 
And the text says, suddenly the servant looks up and sees what the Bible calls a mountain full of horses and chariots of fire. It's a pretty cool story. (laughs) Now look, don't draw the wrong lesson from that illustration. I really do believe that those miraculous manifestations of God's presence were, were intended for a time of the prophet's witness. And the culmination of Jesus sort of being that, what that witness was about means that we don't seek those things anymore, those kinds of, uh, or even expect those kind of things. My point is simply this, that when you read the Bible as a story, there should come a moment where your eyes are open to the setting of the Bible. And it should at least challenge you, when you whether you're looking up at a night sky or whether you're walking to your car on your way to work. That this is my father's world and it's supernatural and it is open to him. And that somewhere in the midst of that, we might find out what Elisha said to his servant in the midst of that conversation, where he says, those that are for us are greater than those that are against us. That's what leads us into that. So the question is, have our eyes been open to that? That's an invitation. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, then would you give us those eyes because they're spiritual in nature and we are, so, we are so apt to see the world through our own lenses, lenses which skew things that we know are true, but for whatever reason, because they're shielded from our, from our sinful perception where we don't see the world the way that it really is, we skew it and we make it something less than what it should be. Would you then guide us this morning, even maybe as we sing, to see your heaven and your earth intersected in this place in the minds and the hearts of those around us. Would you do that? Or we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.